Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our mid-month show, we talk with talented art director and movie prop supplier, Kirk Doman. Then a monthly roundup of movie news. I'm looking forward to giving a Studio Ghibli update while Jeff talks Welsh and Graham gets a choice. After that, Elijah returns with another Rediscovering the Classics. This month, Spartacus. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies, and absolutely nothing to do with Mel Gibson. <laughs> Hi, my name is Neil. I just love movies. Yes, this month, unknown to the other two, I ran a secret poll on Twitter. Always the a question- bad sign. It's always a good sign, Graham. The question was, should Graham read movie news oh, he is interested in, or movie news the public want him to read? To build the suspense, I've given Graham two envelopes, and I will be taking one of them away when I announce the result of the poll. The result may surprise you. Before that, let's talk about something a bit more serious. Something we touched upon in our recent show on sequels, remakes and reboots. Recently, the producers at Eon said that James Bond will never be a woman. Do you think that's right or wrong? Now, personally, I think it's a right call. Ian Fleming wrote the character as a male. What next? A man to play Wonder Woman or even Elton John? No! (laughs) They should be played in the gender they were originally created. If you want strong female characters, and frankly, who doesn't, then make them original. More Atomic Blondes or Harley Quinns. Although I'm sure Elton could take that role given those costumes. What do you think, Graham? Well, Jeff, I know you say every episode that your main cinema interests are political movies. I hate to burst your bubble, but cinema is art, not politics. And the role of art is to challenge preconceived ideas, prejudices and the social norm. Just because Ian Fleming wrote Bond as a man doesn't imbue his character with an immutable maleness. It's all made up, Jeff. It's not real. There are no rules, categories or neat little boxes for you to put things in. For me, the thing that really makes cinema wonderful, interesting and endlessly fascinating is that nothing is permanent, fixed or locked. Everything outside of the laws of physics is up for grabs. Except it's all financial and it'll never run. But other than that, you have some interesting points there, Graham. What's your view, Neil? It's a difficult subject. shouldn't be a difficult subject, but I think considered case by case. Honestly, I think Bond should be a man. Um, he's a misogynist for a start. That's very difficult like for a woman him. to play. Doctor Who is now a woman. It's whether the change fits in the context of the character, or, or indeed, as Graham says, sometimes you just have to rethink these things and there's no reason why it shouldn't be. And if it fits, be bold enough to change it. I think Bond could be a woman. Yeah, could be rewritten, uh, but be it done. would be. It's it all, would be very different. So all up for grabs. It so, should be yes. No, it's not. We just watched In, David Copperfield, and we all liked it, and that was all he was completely a bloody different. great magician. Um, <laughs> and that was all different people all over the place. Women sell themselves short when they do this. They need original characters, create their own characters. I agree in that. That's one. fine. We all agree. That's on that fine, one. but yeah. you can't just say, oh, "I'm sorry, 
James Bond's a man, can't be a woman. Because he is a man. Ian Fleming wrote him as a man 60-odd years ago. He made him up as a man. And if he'd written Out him, of his own brain, it's not, it's not a today, law. If he'd written him today, which the movies are set today, it's quite possible that he could have written her as a woman. Anyway, okay, that's enough putting the world to rights. Let's move on to our first big interview of this year. Jeff was recently over in South Africa, although sadly he came back. However, while he was there, he managed to speak to a couple of people associated with the South African film and television industry. One of those interviews was with Kirk Doman, a fascinating and hard-working man who started in the film industry as a supplier of high-quality props for movie sets. From there, he became an art director on such films as Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and breathe, as well as work on such high-quality TV series as The Crown and Warrior. Jeff managed to catch up with a very busy Kirk one Saturday morning in Cape Town. Let's go over to Jeff for what I'm sure you'll agree is a fascinating interview. Hi, and welcome from Jeff from your At The Flicks team over in a very sunny Cape Town. Today I am with movie art director Kirk Doman. Hi, Kirk. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Jeff. We are over in your company, Prop Art. We're sitting there at the moment, and we'll talk about that more in a, in a minute. And there's some incredible photos we got of this place. Now, you've built up a very impressive resume in your film career. However, am I right in my understanding that getting into films wasn't your lifetime ambition? Films were never on the cards for me. I started off travelling overseas for four years after school, ended up in Cape Town. And um, just um, started busking, playing music in Triumph down in St. George's Mall and met some people that I knew from Grahamstown who sort of mentioned film industry runner opportunities. I think about the age of 24, 25, I started running like as an art department runner. Was that about the same time that the industry was starting to develop in Cape Town? Right time, right place sort of thing? Probably a few years before that, maybe like three or four years, there's always been an industry with South African TV and stuff, but obviously I think maybe like after the apartheid things kind of started picking up with international jobs and definitely when I started the commercial industry, really big, a lot of commercials. So my first five years in the industry was predominantly just commercials. And then from commercials, I sort of slowly started drifting across to features. Yeah. And I always dribbled back and forwards, but nowadays it's movies. We met briefly before this, and one of the things she said to me that stuck with me, she said, check out my IMDb page. And I was just amazed. You know, it's an extensive list of credits on both small and large productions, and that's just the movies and TV. So yeah. the commercials you're talking about, which are covered on one of your other sites, are really impressive. What is it about sort of making movies then, having come into it in the way you did, that really appeals to you? I never actually knew what I wanted to do. Before I started travelling, I did a bit of carpentry, and I come from Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape, so it's quite an arty town. We had good art schools, and so there's always been, with the festivals there, and like a really sort of strong art culture in just sort of, I guess... Right. In, in life, you know, that's what you get from growing up there. And after travelling, I started a carpentry trade and flunked out on that and decided to go travelling. And I guess travelling, you just do millions of different jobs, you know, from washing dishes to working on building sites to gardening to 
whatever work. So when I started in the film industry and moved from being a, a runner, I met an art director who I ended up working with for... When I started working with him, I instantly kind of was like, felt really at home. With your background in carpentry, did that... I mean, do you still get involved in building sets or do you leave that to others now? When we do smaller jobs from our papas here, we've got a little workshop downstairs. So we'll like sort of build little flats and walls and, you know, and understanding how things work from bigger jobs. When we do smaller jobs, I'll just do it okay. myself. Yeah, you know, so smaller jobs, I'll just run my own little team. But on the bigger jobs, then you've got to work with the pros. But definitely having the smaller job experience and understanding how things go from drawings to buildings to the scenic work and actually just getting it to a finished sort of point ready for camera, it's quite handy. You mentioned prop art there, and of course we're now in your, your prop art building at the moment, and it's really impressive just walking around you and seeing all the various props that you rent out to film, TV and commercials. What was your idea in sort of developing this? Well, this was actually another one of those right moment, right place at the right time. I came back from overseas not knowing what I was doing and sort of stumbled across these buildings empty. My intentions were actually just to start a little workshop making didgeridoos, and that's what I did, you know, bassed music, made instruments. Sort of being on the premises, managed to get a little bit of more space, and the next thing I had a bit more space, and then it evolved into a little music studio, and then I started shooting stuff and editing it, and that was all kind of while I was starting in the art department. Ten years later, I'd got married and moved out of here, but my, my friend from East London, and we studied art together, he was with me here and he did the same thing. We both sort of got married at the same time and moved out, kept the premises and used it as a workshop area, kept our tools here and we'd run little jobs from here. And we just slowly started collecting things and the next thing it just sort of turned into something and definitely wasn't planned. Something is an understatement. This yeah. is a phenomenal place to walk through and what you see as you go through. For our listeners, we'll put a link onto the site so you can go to Prop Art and, and see the various items on there for yourself. But back to you, Kirk. I mean, what, what would you say is your most unusual and your most rented props that you've got? There's a lot of things that are popular and that, you know, they change in seasons. So one season it will be really popular and then it, it just won't work for a long time and then suddenly it will work. But, you know, the more sort of abstract artworks that just are nice for soft decorations on set, those are always really popular. You know, yeah. some of the artworks that I've had for 10 years have never worked, but it doesn't really matter because they're nice pieces and one day when they work, they'll be really appreciated for that day that they need to be, you know. But yeah, apart from that, I guess some of the furniture, you know, some of the old couches that you that don't look that great, but on camera they look good, you know, and one never really knows what's going to go out the door. We interviewed a, a chap, Midge Ferguson, location manager, and Midge's gripe to us was that he said, you know, you do a lot of work like this and you with the props and, you know, getting the right props into the right locations and whatever. And he said, you're never recognised for it. There's nothing there for location. I imagine for props is the same. And yet, you get the wrong props in the wrong place. Yeah. It'll stand out too much. You know, you, you almost want them to be functional, almost fade into the background so it looks real. Yeah, that's the art, you know, the yeah. design and art, getting the right colours and putting it all together and making the palettes sort of work, you know. 
Let's go over to your filmmaking career. So in your early film career, a wide variety uh, of production roles, as you've already said. I mean, look at films like Libra Mac Blind, Piano Player, Supernova, which oddly had Luke Perry and Peter Fonda, both of whom passed not so long ago, and Known Gods. Now, respectively, you were art assistant, art department runner, on-set dresser and props. Which of those works and roles did you find the most rewarding at the time? They all have their own challenges. You know, the art department runner is... Probably the easiest job. Yeah. But, you know, we're being starting at the bottom. You, what you find is you have a lot of bosses and a lot of people think they can give you things to do and you've got to prioritise who's the most important. And it's, an e- it's actually an easy job. But I think the part that's the most important is the character and relationship building and accepting the challenges people throw at you and just making sure that you keep people happy because you don't realize that at that stage but 10 years later in industry small you'll still be working with some of these people so it was very important actually being a runner and understanding how to keep everybody happy and get the actual get the job done and you know do it with a smile on your face absolutely i mean of those four the only one i've seen is supernova a mega low budgeted american film but it's functional, it worked, it entertained. Yeah, it was a good job. That was with yeah, Luke Perry and Peter Fonda. And, yeah, they were all really nice. Luke Perry was amazing. Yeah. And I was an on-set decorator on that job. So, you know, just on-set, dealing with all the dressing, making sure that everything in front of camera looks good. Again, looking at your career, props then seem to be the main feature for the next few films and TV series you worked on. Did that coexist with the development of prop art where we are now? At that stage, I think after Supernova and Known Gods, it was maybe Known Gods, Supernova, I went on to Blood Diamond with another company in Cape Town called Props to the Stars. A much bigger space than us, but they do specialising in sort of Africa and Muti and markets and sort of really third world kind of stuff, you know, But yeah. um, and also quite a lot of military and um, camo stuff and guns and all of that kind of stuff got offered a job with them and I took it. I thought this was going to be an awesome opportunity and I think I worked with them again for about four years because they sort of specialised in props. I just sort of stuck with it and I just thought, well, this is awesome. We're going on all these adventures, South Coast of Natal, Mozambique, Namibia. You know, So we had jobs, a lot of really fun jobs um, all over. And working with experienced props guys, you learn a lot. And being a prop standby is... Probably the most, you know, challenging job there is. Uh, you know, for me it was you're dealing with continuities, you're dealing with actors, and you're dealing with all the uh, interdepartmental affairs. So you've got an actor, there's a stunt happening, there's special effects, he's getting his head blown off, someone's blowing it off, someone's doing a you know, post-visual effects on where the head came off. You're just getting involved with all of that. You're dealing with the director and he wants these props and something's breaking and then you've got to fix it and... It's probably the most stressful job in the art department, yeah. Yeah. like hands down. You know, I've done quite a few jobs, and that was definitely the job to sort of set you up. I think if you can crack that job, then... Guns must be a particular nuisance as a prop. I imagine they jam and they don't work. And Yeah, you have, uh, you know, obviously the armourers that deal with that. When you're a props master, you're basically doing the, ba- the breakdowns and you basically spoon feeding the information to the armourers. Because yeah. the armourers are usually like outsourced and they don't... You know, on bigger jobs, they 
will come on. You know, like with Black Diamond, we had a massive armor department. But when you get dummies, like, you know, molded AK-47s and, you know, things like that, then you, then they come from the props department. Right. So the props department will be handing out dummies to everyone in the background. And the actual guys doing all the firing and, the, you know, foreground stuff will be the armorers dealing with all that stuff. Was Crusoe with that same company as well, or was that a different... Yeah, no, Robinson Crusoe was also with uh, Moonlighting Films. A lot of my f- work is with Moonlighting Films. A few with Film Africa, predominantly I've worked with Film Africa and Moonlighting. Those are our main two film companies in Cape Town. But yeah, Crusoe was with them, but I also worked with Crusoe with uh, the same props department. Yeah, that was amazing. We were in Platonburg Bay for six months, so shooting uh, just outside Kierbooms in the forest there building tree houses in the trees and we had a props department on a farm on a hill fabricating department so it was a really fun job everything had to be fabricated because you you know robinson crusoe you're not going to run down to a supermarket to find your props you know you're going to make them so we were making lots of cool props on on that so that was that was a real fun job actually yeah now a film i'm interested in around the stage was doomsday uh, science fiction adventure along the Mad Max and it always struck me when I was watching it in the cinema you've got, it's set in Scotland but of course you've got these very obvious bits to me because I come over here that are in Cape Town as opposed to, to Scotland but it's great, I'm a huge Neil Marshall fan yeah. I think he's done some good work on very limited budgets and what was that film like to work on? Quite a stressful job, a lot of locations around Cape Town medium sized budget um, not a huge budget but you know relatively big Big art department, lots of fabricating again going on, lots of customised things, all those Mad Max vehicles and all the yeah. sort of crazy prop elements that went with it. and That big chase at the end of the film when they're, they're trying to get back. Yeah, that kept us kept us very busy, but again, a very exciting project. Um, we worked with Simon Bowles, who was a production designer from London, who's amazing, um, very nice man to work with, and... You know, it's nice when you get on the jobs when your leaders are nice and it all sort of filters down and makes the job nice. Occasionally you hit a job where the leader is, you know, hasn't got such a great attitude and then it makes the whole environment quite tense. It's interesting, the whole industry, if you haven't got people skills, this must be a nightmare of a job because you, you need those teams around you. You know, especially for, for youngsters that don't actually know what they want to do, Travelling helps you with those social skills a lot. You know, you, yeah. you know, you go out and you have to learn how to socialise and and communicate with people in other languages, and you really learn good communication skills. And it's definitely worked in the film industry. You know, working with people from all over the world. Yeah, and what we've spoken about so far, it looks like you've had much more hits than misses in terms of getting in with good crews and good teams. And, you know, developing yourself and, and developing the teams around you. So that all yeah. sounds really good. Now, around this time, it was sort of a move from props to art design. It was quite a strange move from props into art direction. I think I did three props master jobs, but then I just sort of just went straight into art directing. But I, th- I think where it, what it actually came from was my commercial background, where I did four or five years of art department commercials. In the commercial world, I was always wanting to art direct and then went into all the films, and it was a slightly different thing. But, you know, after some of the jobs, I think it was one of the jobs I did, the Nine Gods job, I did a standby props job. That company 
asked me if I wanted to become an art director. It was like a low-budget South African TV series. It was the time that we were just getting set up with pop art, and if I'm not mistaken, I think we had just employed someone to run the business for us. And when they asked me to do the job, I sort of said, I'll do the job, but like I'd like to run the job from my prop house. So that yeah. we'd have the workshop space to make things, we'd got office space to work from, because then that would help me with the setting up of the business and keeping an eye on things while I'm doing the job. And they were like, that sounds like a really good idea. Okay, was that around the time of retribution? Was that one of those? Yeah, that was also around that whole sort of period of time. Retribution was another small budget job with Moonlighting Films. Philip yeah. Keyes and Makunda, I think, was the director. He actually was a commercial a commercial director. He approached Philip from uh, Moonlighting with his story and somehow they got funding and they were looking for a junior art director who had sort of a little bit of design skills. And so that job worked out quite fun. It wasn't a big job. It was with Moonlighting, who I often work with. And, yeah, it was a good opportunity. So, again, you've got... And, and this is interesting, going through all your career, you've got, as you say, the low-budget jobs with some very high-budget ones. So you've got Retribution, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. You don't get bigger than that, do you, really? They were shooting in Dubai, and they were shooting in Prague, and they were shooting in Canada. I'd been put forward for an on-set decorating position for Dubai with the South African crew. I think there was about 25 South Africans that went to Dubai. And when I got interviewed for the job with uh, Rosemary Brandenburg, who's a, she's a, a US um, set decorator, she, when she interviewed me, she said to me, would you be prepared to come to Prague? So I'd like to split the continuity between Prague and Dubai and then Canada, just take the load off splitting it between three countries. So I, I was very fortunate to be the only South African that got to go to Prague on that job. When we got to Prague, they couldn't find an art director that they were happy with. I think, again, it was the language thing, to be the onset art director, and they didn't want to bring someone from the States. And she had spotted on my resume that I had a few art directing skills. So she put me forward to be the onset art director. And then what they would do is they would supply me with a few extra assistance, like a set deck, standby set deck grader. And it worked out really well, and they gave me like a nice pay increase. It was, it was a good job. I really did luck out in Prague. The second assistant director, just it was by complete luck that he actually also was the second assistant director on Blood Diamond. Right. And he's from Hawaii. Okay. And he really works in LA a lot. And he's a very heavyweight second. He's a good surfer, and I like surfing. And so we had actually surfed together on Blood Diamond. Right. So he was very surprised to see me in Prague. So there's no surfing there, though, is there? No, there's no surfing there. But um, <laughs> so we got to work together again, and it was for me like uh, when you're an onset art director or, or standby props or onset decorator, the assistant director is your. That's the guy you watch. You know, you're like he's the guy making the calls. You got to know what he's thinking, so you've already planned it before he's thought about it. You know, because when that scene finishes, it's on to the next scene. You got to make sure that. Everything's ready. You yeah. know, can't just walk over into the next scene and start cheating. But you must still be on that current scene. So that was, for me, that relationship helped a lot on Mission Impossible for me, just having Brandon on the job with me. That's good. And the Dubai stuff, I mean, on, the, on screen, that Dubai stuff is pretty radical. Yeah, that was amazing to have worked with Tom Cruise for 10 weeks on set um, every day with him. He's like the most amazing, friendly guy. 
I was really nervous before going there by myself, thinking, oh, I'm not going to know anybody. I'm going to be like totally in the deep end. It just turned out to be the, the easiest and best thing ever. And he was so friendly. Like, he yeah. always thanks you for doing, I mean, it sounds like this amazing title. On oh. set art director, I'm actually on my hands and knees polishing floors with rags so that he can run across it. But he'll come and say, thanks for, for doing such a great job on polishing that floor. You know? I don't feel, did you, did you watch that MR4 where, you know, there's a scene where he escaped from a hospital. Yes. He's standing on a ledge. Yeah. He jumps and he catches a telephone wire with his belt and he slides down, drops yeah. onto the roof of a car, onto the pavement and off he runs. That was shot across the road from like, kind of like a special needs school. They were all watching out the windows the whole time and, you know, so they had to sort of monitor the kids not to look out the windows all the time. But he was just like, bring them down and let them all come and sit behind the monitors and let them watch. And he had, the, he had like these kids sitting in his chair and he would do that stunt like for three days and at the end of every day. And he would do it without a shirt on in the middle of winter, not the middle of winter, but early winter, it's freaking cold. And end of the day, there he is at his car, Signing autographs with yeah. 100 people for two hours. I took my hats off to him. He did all his own stunts. I mean, it makes a lot of time saving, you know. You don't have to wait for costumes to change back onto the stunt double, back onto those, the same as the props, you know. It's all for him. Yeah. Everything that any of his stunt doubles do is just do all the rehearsals, get all the camera movements right, get everything set up. He walks onto set. Everybody knows what they're doing. And his stunt guy just says, okay, this is how I did it. That's how they rehearsed it. And then he jumps on and he does it and it's, you know, in the can. I mean, those scenes on the um, Burj Khalifa, 140th floor, he was running and jumping out of it and sprinting down the building to the 120th floor. It is great. You've got one of the biggest stars on the planet. Everybody we've spoken to, anybody who's ever met him or worked with him, Nobody has a bad word to say about him. And, yeah, you know, I think you know people like Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks. You know these guys are, are just fantastic. Now, I've got to be honest. The next one sort of leapt out at me. In fact, there are two that leapt out at me. Has been very unusual. The title of Grimsby, Sasha Baron Cohen, and Mark Strong film. And of course, then I realised uh, not only is it filmed in the UK, it was filmed in other locations as well because of the spy element of the film. How did you become involved in that production? Somebody that was on, an art director on that job resigned. I think he was going on to another job and they needed someone to take over. So I almost actually just filled in from halfway through the job. I wasn't on the entire job. Um, it wasn't the greatest job to be on. To be, it was like, I wouldn't want to be on that job again. <laughs> <laughs> The script I didn't really like. It wasn't the greatest script. But I watched it, and it was better watching it than it was reading the scripts, you know. So Yeah, it, it's an odd balance. Sasha Baron Cohen on the one hand, and Mark Strong on yeah. the other. It, was, it had its quite quirky, funny moments and stuff, but it wasn't particularly one of the fun jobs that I've worked on. Okay, let's move on quickly then to Breathe. Now, Breathe, I thought it was an incredibly moving film, directed by Andy Serkis best known, of course, for um, Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And you've got two top stars, Andrew Garfield and Claire Foy. Now, that's a period set. And did that present you with challenges, being sort of set like the 40s and 50s? You know, period is always, you know, the favourite thing to work on because it's always the most creative. Yeah. You, you, uh, you find with the sort of contemporary stuff, you know, the camera guy and the DOP can just go like, oh, no, let's just shoot there, the light's better. Yeah. 
we can't do that on the period film. So you've got to really like the the set that's been designed is the set is your stage, and it's you know with the period stuff you've got to stick to what's put in front of you. So from an art department point, it's always a nice, it's much better to for more fun, you know, on pair of jobs. But it is a lot more difficult, especially in South Africa where we don't have the luxury that the UK has got. The UK has got like prop houses that are 100 years old and, yeah. you know, warehouses with props wrapped up to the ceilings that, you know, so choosing stuff and finding stuff, it's it's all there. In Cape Town, we, you know, we don't have I know, our oldest prop house is probably 30 years old and yeah. you know it's a, a lot of stuff has to get fabricated so you'll be fine just you know you know you're ordering the cheaper things and you're fabricating a lot of these furniture pieces that you need in bulk that you you know you can't find in it so it has a lot more challenges on the period films but always a lot nicer to actually work on breathe was also with the company moonlighting films that i do a lot of work with with Andy, and Andy was an amazing guy. Yeah. I don't know if you know his business partner, Jonathan Cavendish, who's the son of Richard and Diana Cavendish. Right. And so he decided to produce the film about his father. Like, it was such a beautiful project to work on. Yeah. Because uh, Jonathan was making this film about his father's story, they just... Andy Serkis is probably the nicest director I've... He's incredibly nice. He's from the caterers to... It doesn't matter who. He's He wants to know your name. He wants to know a little bit about you. He's just like a real, real nice guy. I can say that on that job, we shot in uh, in Durban on the south coast of Natal. Okay. Durban, and then on some game farms. So it was all the sort of Africa, you know, Kenya stuff with the elephants and... From the beginning of the job, scouting and going to look for locations, and you know, we spent like two weeks driving around game farms with Jonathan Cavendish and Andy Circus looking at wild animals, but looking for places to set up the camps and where they're going to be driving their Land Rovers. And it was a lovely job to work on. You were saying, obviously, you've got the limited range on the props and setting up. And when you're designing this, did you have to make compromises? Is there some, was there anything you thought I would have loved to have been able to get something like this? I can't get it, so my next best thing is... I think on that job, it wasn't too difficult. I don't think anything was... Yeah, I think that job was actually... There was no big office scenes and, uh, you know, like where you got multiple amounts of things and stuff. But, um, yeah, we got to work with a beautiful uh, production designer and he was the guy that actually took me to go and work on the Guernsey job. Right. Which we can chat about now, but, um, Yeah. yeah. James Merrifield. Okay. Again, that's the second surprise that came off. You know, the, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, set in Guernsey and London. So I was really surprised to see it there. Where, where was that? So that was actually in the UK. Um, right. So from, from uh, working with James Merrifield on Breathe, asked me if I wanted to come work on the job. He, he got offered this, this job while we were on Breathe together. And he sort of just mentioned he might have this job. And if he gets it, would I be interested in coming to work in the UK? You know, chat to my wife, and you know, if it's worth my while, I'll definitely like to get the experience. And he got the job a couple of months later. I was working on because I did the crown after breathe, and while I was on the crown, I got an email from him and decided, you know, I'm going to go work in London for I think it's uh, 16 or 17 weeks. So we were... did you work in Guernsey at all? Or just... No, that was all shot in Bedford and Clavelli, and all on that sort of Devon. Uh, coastline you know yeah. um and then uh, obviously london 
Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. So yeah, it was it was coming from here and going there. It was kind of like recce. I think I did three or four scouts up to Clavelli and Biddeford and surveying all the places that we were shooting and just getting all our information together. It was really nice just to get a, like a, get thrown into the deep end into working with a team that you you know you didn't know anyone other than James who you'd worked with here. And um, it was nice. I started the job with them before most of the departments. So I, I got quite involved with, with what was going on and sort of put me in a good place on that job. And it was it was great. I got to work with Paul Garadani, who was the supervising art director from Game of Thrones. Okay. He's done all the Game of Thrones. So he was the supervising art director on that job. And he and I became really good friends. And he's... Going back to Breathe, you said, you know, in, in that case, luckily there were no offices you had to do. It's not the case in Guernsey, though, is it? There's a lot of London offices. Yeah, so exactly. And so what we shot in Guernsey, there was the newspaper, that little newspaper office. Yeah. Well, actually, it was the exterior of that was in Clavelli. One owner owns the whole place, and he owns the land next door, and he lives in this massive mansion. You can't own a place in Clavelli. You can just rent it. Right. And you rent a little house or whatever, but you can't rent it as a holiday place. You have to live there. So he's got like maybe maybe about 50, 50 places all on the hill. When you go there, you can, it's beautiful for period. So the office exterior was there. Yeah. And then just outside London, there's a castle called the Sherburn Castle. Okay. It's this huge castle. They do a lot of movies there. Um, I don't know what other movies they've done there, but you, it's, it's a massive estate with properties all over. And the interior of those offices were over there. And so, yeah, like London's got the prop houses and it's like two truckloads come and drop off all the props and it's just everything you need, it's done and off they go afterwards. So nothing that we can do over here, you know. <laughs> you say when you started out, you did sort of did some travelling and, and yes. travelled around London, uh, around the UK. And then, you know, your business you built up, mainly in Africa, other countries, we've already said Prague. But going back to the UK, and as you said, you, you knew one chap, you had to develop those contacts. Uh, that was actually um, kind of relatively easy, but I'd say, I, you know, my position that I had to fulfill, I didn't need to rely on many contacts. I kind of just did um, more office-based stuff and location stuff. So I worked from the office and dealt with the locations. Right, okay. Um, so I wasn't actually getting involved with fabricating and set dressing and props and stuff. That was for the other departments. You know, in, in that little bit of time that you're there, you, you, as you a couple of phone calls with one person and you're already connected to them. And, you know, yeah. so it's quite quick to... I mean, London would be a very easy place to sort of go and slot into and just start, start a new career in another country. And, and, and that is a neat tie-in to the other um, South African who worked on um, Guernsey. He was on the music side as an assistant, and that's young Daniel Gad who's moved over there. I found that brilliant. You know, you've got this yeah. very English film, yeah. and um, yeah, the, the likes of you and Daniel taking this perspective on it, and, and it just made it look great. Oh, yeah. It's a tremendous film. It's been a big box office hit as well, which is really deserved, I think. Yeah, that's really good, yeah. And talking about box office and big, we mentioned The Crown earlier. I can't pass over that. How was that experience? The Crown was another sort of dream art department job. Um, Again, the period stuff, uh, it's always tricky. They had so much cash. And so whatever they wanted, you had to get it, whether you shipped it in, flew it in, fabricated it, 
anything they wanted, <laughs> they had to get. And you had to make it happen. And that was my job. And and we made it happen. And it was like the nice thing about it was having all the money and having all the people in town, especially in Cape Town, like for me, like with the contacts and people that you know can make things. It just gave so many different people opportunities to, to shine with what they could fabricate. And so there were so many people just all over. I mean, it was difficult to keep up with all the people fabricating things. There was so much fabricating going on. And it was all sort of polished stuff because it was very high end and, you know, the Britannia, we built the Britannia and we built a tank. And so we had a very good construction team on that. Um, George Brain and Gigi Potter, massive challenge. But, yeah, we definitely were successful. We mentioned Game of Thrones earlier. This is up there with that, isn't it? And on its ratings. I mean, it, it's just a phenomenal hit all over the world. Yeah. So uh, people all over the world are watching your work. Yeah. yeah. Massive numbers. So let's come right up to date. Now, you're working on a TV series called Warrior. Now, it's something I don't know a great deal about. What's the show about and what is you know, from uh, your main so, role in that? So it's just action, fighting, Bruce Lee. You know, um, it's produced by um, her, his daughter, um, Shannon Lee. She's one of the producers, and um, it's uh, HBO. It's huge set builds, also period, 1870s, um, San Francisco. Uh, at the Cape Town Film Studios, we built sets there, which was like downtown San Francisco, and then streets going down into Chinatown. Okay. Triple-story buildings. It's a massive, massive footprint. Um, it's beautiful sets, and um, upset Brendan Smithers and his team, they did a like amazing job. And I did two seasons of that, working with one of my favourite supervising art directors who I like working underneath, uh, Christoph Dahlberg. So, um, yeah, that was really nice. I've done two seasons of it, and, you know, if they did a season three, you know, chances are if I was available, I'd probably do another season. But, yeah, it's also city locations, the city hall. So it's all the – there's a bunch of period films – sorry, period locations in Cape Town that are very sort of synonymous to film. That's where – you know, if there's a period film, that's where they're going (laughs) – you either like it or you don't. I'm going to check it out now. Yeah, it's fighting, it's it's kind of sex, it's gore, it's blood. It's like all blood. You're ticking every box for me. Yeah, you so know. it's the it's the downtown Chinatown opium trade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you no, know, no, no. Um, yeah. The white cops with gambling habits. Um, you know, it's all it's all messy, but very, yeah, pretty gory. I think it's good good quality. I should be checking with our... Because one of our contributors, uh, Declan, is our... Um, TV and streaming expert, I will be checking with him yeah. as soon as I get back on that. But it definitely sounds like something I would watch, so yeah. thank you. I mean, just generally, the, the South African movie scene seems to be thriving at the moment. Is that, would you agree with that? Or? Um, yeah, I get it. Again, you know, it's, it's all very seasonal. Um, I, I find that the films, and definitely with the Netflix and the HBO and, you know, all this you know, this TV series that's become so popular, it's definitely bringing a whole new um, avenue of work to to Cape Town. And um, it's that sort of medium budget where they want to get more for their cash. The big budget jobs, they've got lots of money. They don't don't mind where they are. You know, they can shoot in London or shoot in New York. That's fine for them, you know. We don't have all the locations. But the medium jobs where our locations work are the exteriors and the set boards. We've got, you know, we've got a good crew. 
But we can only run X amount of jobs at a time in Cape Town. And then after that, it's, you know, the, the quality of your crew starts getting worse. And, you know, once you've got six feature films happening, you battle to find anybody to work. So there's, it seems like there's a steady flow. Um, the, the RAND, obviously, with the exchange rate, is in their favor. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, the, the tax rebates... Is appealing to them, you know. So it's you know good reasons to come and film you. So you could be in an enviable position here of saying which job would I want this season? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Usually it's the first one that confirms you. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. So for people who want to look at your career online and some of the remarkable pieces in prop art, where can they go to view them? Um, well, the IMDb is obviously a good place just to actually see you know, all the feature films and stuff. I've got a website, which is my name and surname, www.kirkdome.co.za. Uh, Propart's got a www.propartrentals.co.za, and you can see the website. There's a Facebook page attached to that. That's brilliant. Well, what we'll do is we'll put the links in our show notes as well. Yeah, excellent. So, um, well, thank you very much for giving up some of your extremely busy time to yeah, talk to us. No, today. cool. Thanks so much. Ah, thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Incredible. It shows where hard work and talent can take you. Kirk, if I was wearing a hat, I'd take it off to you, mate. Thanks for sharing your stories with us. By the way, pictures of Jeff and Kirk talking are included in the show notes and also on our Facebook page. Thanks, Les, for taking the pictures. At this rate, you'll be putting Neil out of a job, which, of course, is Neil's cunning plan to get more time to play golf. (laughs) Kirk also let Jeff and Les tour his prop store, and we have also uploaded some of those pictures. I would urge you to check them out. They are fantastic. Okay, to the desk, lads. It's movie news time. It's been three months since we last had movie news, which means we have even had time to have our suits pressed. Although, Neil, I would suggest next time, take it off before the pressing, no matter how much you enjoy it. Ah, Neil, now the steamy affair on the pressing matter you mentioned earlier makes sense. (laughs) Very good, Graham. Well done. That was good. Add to that air of mystery. We, of course, don't know yet the results of the poll, for which news Graham was going to read out. I can guess, Jeff, so Gibson off. This poll already has the validity of the Iowa caucus. Yeah, <laughs> but luckily without a gay mayor. <laughs> no idea what you'll get, but I have some great news to tell our listeners. Most of you probably know already that Studio Ghibli have entered into a deal with Netflix. This started on 1st of February and the first batch included My Neighbour Totoro, which incidentally is one of Jonathan Ross's favourite movies, Kiki's Delivery Service and the frankly bonkers Porco Rosso. Those of you who follow our Twitter account will also know I've been sending out daily tweets featuring the back catalogue from this studio. We can look forward to more films on Netflix on March the 1st. And April the 1st. Are they shown in English, Neil? I hope they're not putting out bloody subtitle cartoons now. You even. Wipe the board off your face and learn to appreciate culture. Also, Graham, yes, Jeff, you can switch your Netflix settings over to English. But why would you? Why would you want Disney's version? 
Or even better, ask your wife Les, who's watched Castle in the Sky already. Has she? She never asked my permission to watch that. Hardly ignore <laughs> you, Jeff, as Les does, and your outdated ways, and return to Studio Ghibli and Netflix. Included in the March Batch are Princess Mononoke, Arietti, and one of my all-time favourites, Spirited Away. Then in April, watch out for, among others, The Wind Rises, and my absolute favourite, Howl's Moving Castle. Do they remove them at the end of the month? So do you lose, or are they just add Don't know. to them? I can't believe they're going to. If they bought them, they'll have to put them in for ages. Because like I'm not going to get through them all. I'm, I'm halfway through Kiki's delivery service now. Yeah. And I probably won't get the others finished this month. Hang on, you lot are missing something here. Howl's Moving Castle? It's a great Welsh tale. No, it isn't. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> That's Howl's. <laughs> which could only be told by the Japanese, says a lot about Welsh filmmaking. <laughs> True, Graham. All they're interested in is remaking proven hits and disguising them as Welsh, like Apocalypse Now in a minute and Last Tango in Powys. <laughs> Come back to the future, or my favourite, the Caffili Hillbillies. <laughs> oh, laugh it up, you racists. <laughs> At least he didn't and Cole hand Luke. Oh, I'm he's doing so it, looking mate. forward to what won the poll for Graham's news this month. <laughs> In the words of Han Solo, laugh it up, fuzzball. Will it include Welsh titles? Anyway, back to my news. As if the Netflix connection isn't big enough, Studio Ghibli have announced the release of two new films this year. Both have been in development since 2017. First up is what probably will be the last film from Hayao Miyazaki. He's done several last films, but I think this might be the last. It's called How Do You Live? based on a 1937 Japanese novel. It is about 15-year-old Junichi Honda who, through a series of challenging adventures in life, comes to understand spirituality and that all-important question of the title, How Do You Live?, This movie should be out in Japan sometime this summer. Details of the other film are not being announced as yet. However, we believe it is the long-in-development CG animated film being made by Miyazaki's son, Goro Miyazaki. As soon as we get any details and a confirmed release date, we'll let you know. I, for one, am very excited about this. Yeah, it shows, Neil. Japan is a country of culture. And so is the country which is the origin of our next segment of movie news, being Wales. Don't tell me. Escape from Newport? That's not a film, Neil. That's an aspiration. (laughs) Oh, what's that race relations number? I'll contact them after we finish recording. As I was saying before, so bloody lurely interrupted. There are some big films made since we last spoke on this spiritual subject. News so big it can only possibly be eclipsed by the poll-winning movie news for Graham. (laughs) Go Gibson yourself. (laughs) Hang on, let me guess the big Welsh news. They're making a sequel to The King and Die, called The Last King of Splotland. Do you understand Splot? Do you know what Splot is? have found out and I've forgotten again. What's the relationship between Splot and Shirley Bassey? Well, Shirley Bassey... Oh, Splot is a part of... um, It's part of Cardiff. Cardiff. Part of Cardiff. Yes. Once all this is done, of course, they're going to be making a film about Neil's life. (laughs) And it will be called The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down Welsh. (laughs) Now, returning to sanity, Wales is, of course, the place for both big budget productions and critically acclaimed hits. Last year saw one of each film in there. 
First up, let's look at the blockbuster. Mark Wahlberg, yes, that's Mark Wahlberg, Neil, was in Cardiff filming his science fiction epic, Infinite. Post-apocalyptic story by any chance? They didn't need much set decoration if it is. <laughs> cheeky sod. I'll have you know that filming of a big action sequence was outside the first office I ever worked in. Is there a blue plaque? <laughs> um, as Graham would say, Gibson off, and I'm sure he'll be saying that in a few minutes' time. Mark Wahlberg, whose career has gone stratospheric since appearing with Mel in <laughs> Daddy's Home 2, oh, good grief. is Evan Michaels, a man who discovered he can remember skills he had in past lives. Yes, he's part of the Cognomania. Cognomore? No, Cognomania. <laughs> a secret organisation of people who can remember their past lives and are here to save the world. It's based on a book called The Reincarnationist Papers. It's a bit like your favourite novel, Graham. You ought to know this. The Da Vinci Code. Oh, <laughs> now, the film has great credentials. It's directed by Antoine Fuqua, who made Equaliser 2. <laughs> Worst film of the year. No. And also stars Sophie Cookson, Kingsman and The Trial of Christine Keeler, Tudor Ediofor, 12 Years a Slave, or for Graham, Doctor Strange. God almighty. Watch out for Infinite when it opens as one of the films to see this summer. Not such a big scale is Dream Horse. This is based on an incredible true story, which has already been turned into an award-winning documentary called Dark Horse, The Incredible True Story of Dream Alliance. A barmaid in a small Welsh town pays for a small racehorse to be bred, which she calls Dream Alliance. The local people help fund her, and together... They take on the very class-ridden world of horse racing. Could have used sheep. Cheaper. <laughs> Last month, I got a lot of stick for a Chinese joke, which actually was very funny. <laughs> this month, racism has gone mental on this podcast, and I have nothing to do with it. Now, Dream Horse opens in April and stars Tony Collette as Jan. Oh. She's Australian. That's, you two throw in some racist joke about her. She plays the woman with the idea to change her small town. Also in the cast are Damien Lewis. He's English, so you probably won't make any racist comment about him. <laughs> Joanna Page from Gavin and Stacey. She plays Stacey uh, for those that watch that show and, again, will be open for racist abuse from you two. <laughs> and Peter Davison, who is in some third-rate show called Doctor Who. Oh. This promises to be an inspirational hit and possibly in the Cheltenham Film Festival, and I, for one, can't wait to see it. Let's continue with inspirational news, and let's reveal the result of the poll. 99% of people <laughs> want Graham to read the latest Mel Gibson news. I'm not sure of the 1%. I think they're mentally ill. Graham. It's me. Yeah. Um, so I'll just take that envelope back off you and over to you, Graham. Thank you. Oh, hell. Right. I don't believe a word of it. But as you've taken one envelope away, I can only read the contents of the other. Right. Let's do this. Mel Sodding Gibson. Oh, before I read this out, Jeff. I see, dragged across concrete, was up for a Razzie this year. Yeah, by people who don't understand film, and I include you and Neil. <laughs> we were the only three that watched it. Yeah, good point, In Neil. a press showing. 
What's not a breast? Was it hell? <laughs> What's not? We are the only three people in Britain who've seen this film, so there you go. Right, okay, back to Mel. And you all know my opinion of him. The big news is that he is going to star in Lethal Weapon 5. What? Can't wait. It's been 22 years since the last one. God, it seems so much shorter. To coin a phrase from the franchise, they are all too old for this shit now. That's very true. This nearly happened a couple of years ago when original writer Shane Black wrote a script which had Riggs and Murta stuck in New York during a blizzard and battling a Blackwater rogue team. I'd love to have seen that. It was action-packed, but very downbeat. So it didn't happen. Now, Gibson and Danny Glover have confirmed that they are up for making another Lethal Weapon film and series director Richard Donner will return. Fantastic. All promise that this will be the last Lethal Weapon movie. Yes, Mel, I'm sure you'll turn down money for another one after this, especially as your career is going so well. See, you're going to be first in line to buy a ticket to this. <laughs> Go Gibson yourself. And- <laughs> I will not be anywhere near this thing. I will only be there if, like with Dragged Across Concrete, you trick me into it. Hang on, that was a pressure. <laughs> Nothing of the sort. The script <laughs> is being written by Jez Butterworth, writer of Edge of Tomorrow, great film, Spectre, great film, and Le Mans 66. What's he doing connected yeah. to this? Great He's... films. Yeah, they are good films. <laughs> good projects attract great writers. <laughs> yeah, right. And it is hoped the movie will go into production later this year. I'm just going to stop for a minute and say, Jeff, I can read ahead. Do you really expect me to read this next line? For anyone interested in this, Jeff was hoping I was going to just blindly read this next sentence, which went, if Lethal Weapon 5 goes ahead, I will come out of the closet like Philip Schofield and admit I'm a huge Mel fan. Is Philip Schofield a huge Mel fan then? (laughs) (laughs) I think not. I didn't even know Philip Schofield was a huge Mel fan. Oh, he's always wanted to be attached to Mel. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, no. Okay, let's talk about a true classic. One male has nothing to do with it. That striking music is from this month's Rediscovering the Classics. It's one of the themes from the 1960 movie Spartacus. We recorded this last month, shortly before the passing of the legend that was Kirk Douglas, one of our last links with the golden age of Hollywood. Let's go to Jeff for an introduction. Hi, and it's been a while since we've done a Rediscovering the Classics with Elijah. And I know this because people keep writing into the show saying, when are we having another one? I'm glad you're getting my emails, Jeff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're they're good. Thank you for that, Elijah. (laughs) I believe the whole family is sending them to me now. Good to hear from you there. How are you doing, Elijah? Doing great. It's good to be back and rediscovering the classics. We need to start with a bang. Let's go for an epic. The 1960 film Spartacus. 
directed by Stanley Kubrick, a troubled production. First director, Anthony Mann, got fired, and then they brought on Kubrick. So it went downhill from there, really. Oh, no, it didn't. <laughs> However, it turns out to be an Oscar-winning triumph. Elijah, you picked the film, as is tradition. What made you pick this one? Um, it was a film that I hadn't seen before, and honestly, sometimes the only way to kind of force myself to find a film and watch it, you know, get me off my butt because I'm lazy, is to uh, pick it for something like this. So, Elijah, what did you think of Spartacus? Um, I thought it was, for the most part, excellent. I had to watch it over multiple days, so I didn't get the full experience in watching it from beginning to end. Did your version have the overture at the beginning and the intermission? It did. Overture, intermission, the extra scenes, all of that. Excellent. And you think it holds up well today? I think when you take account the period in which it's made, it holds up exceptionally well. It's not made to today's film standards. I was surprised. I'm not sure I've seen all of this in one go, and I did watch it this afternoon, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. There's a book, isn't there? And Howard Fast wrote it, yeah. Donald Trumbo, wasn't it? So Howard Fast wrote the book. That they, Dalton they, they, Trumbo, not uh, Donald yeah, Trump. Yes, I've got him written but, down but, here. Dalton Trumbo and <laughs> um, uh, the Howard Fast book. And I did read some reviews, and one of them said, well, what exactly did uh, Stanley Q bring to this <sighs> and, and that's a if fair everything's point. already set this is exactly what you are going to do Kirk Douglas was a producer so yeah. he's pretty much directing as well saying you know this is the star this is what we're going to do this is what my idea and, and I was reading through the writers and one of them was Peter Ustinov uncredited but Trumbo and Ustinov got involved and yeah, I just can't see where Stanley Kubrick got in. Which is why Kubrick always denied he ever made the film, took it off his mm. resume. Oh, that made sense then. So, cool. yeah. yeah, no. I do think you can see some Kubrick shining through, just the attention to detail, some of the, the ways that he would push boundaries. I disagree completely. Kubrick was all over this film. I sort of agree with what you're saying that Kubrick shines through, but I think the pacing is Kubrick. Did you say the attention to detail, Elijah? Yeah. I think that's yeah. huge in this. It's also the cutting speed or the cutting rhythm. There is a game they play at film school where they play you a classic film and they say to the students, clap every time you see a cut. And with a lot of directors, it's older films. It's a sort of a slow one, two, three. With Stanley Kubrick in this film... You could wait 30 seconds before you'd clap. His, or longer. Or longer, yes, definitely longer. His attention to detail and the fact that he trusts the actors, uh, and they're a stellar cast, mm. to just deliver their lines and deliver it perfectly as a piece of acting. He just lets the camera run. And I saw that all over, especially the bits with Ustinov and, I disagree, but I'll come to that in a Okay. Moment. I just thought Kubrick was all over this, and I liked the wide shots, I liked the epic battles. I thought it was all shot pretty much Kubrick, Kubrick, Kubrick. The, the battles, I'll give you. I mean, the long scenes is something you get in the in the epics. I mean, William Wyler's Ben-Hur, my personal favourite from that period, incredibly long takes with the actors. Yeah, and it's interesting. Without Ben-Hur, this film would never have been made because Kirk Douglas wanted the part of Ben-Hur, and when he didn't get it, he put all his energies into saying, I can do one of these and outdo Ben-Hur. And, and to be fair, as a film, I think he has. I think this holds yeah. up more. But I want to go back to what Graham was saying about 
Kubrick and Kubrick all over it. He was in the military sequences. Kubrick, in all of his films, has a fascination with military. Yes, he, with wanted, army. To, he wanted to do Napoleon, didn't he? he? Wanted to do Napoleon, but you look at Full Metal Jacket, yeah. you look at the battle scenes in something like Barry Lyndon. Yes. You know, and, and even some of the stuff in Strange Love. So that fascination's there. But other than that, you've got some very strong performances with emotion. And you don't get that in Kubrick. You look at Eyes Wide Shut, which is supposedly about romantic obsession, and it's drained of emotion. Whereas this... More erotic obsession, not not romantic obsession. Romance has to come into it. You know, there has to be strong emotional pull for that to work. And for me, the reason Eyes Wide Shut doesn't work is that he does all these takes and he drains the emotion. Uh, from what I've seen of it, then I haven't watched the entire film. You're not missing much. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> no, I'd agree on that one. But that's his only one. But with this, the relationship between Gene Simmons and Kirk Douglas, I think, is really strong. Alex North's score is very lush, very emotional. And again, you don't mm-hmm. get a score like that in any Kubrick film that follows this. Do you even get a score in most of his films? You do, but they're almost a tonal. I mean, you all electronic, like you've got in Clockwork Orange, Orange yeah. or Abigail Meads, Kubrick's daughter, did the score for Full Metal Jacket. Eyes Wide Shut is even more bizarre. The Shining is, a, is an odd score. And then 2001, he completely copped out and just used classical yeah, music. Dutch North score, didn't yes, he? Yes, he did. So this is a very emotional piece. Great actors. And it is the only film that Kubrick made where an actor won an award. Yeah, Yusinov won Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Well-deserved, yeah. I would say. He's hilarious. He is. He is, yes. But I want to pick up on something you said, Elijah, about that this is a, a reflection on Hollywood as well. A lot of people point out the, the socialism element, and obviously Trumbo was part of the Communist Party and other things. I don't think he was quite as radical as a lot of the others. I don't know in, that much about his life, but from what I've what little I've read, but there seems to be a, a strand of anti-Hollywood, or at least the Hollywood um, the Hollywood elites or the, the Hollywood establishment that runs in the film, uh, in, in the sense of Rome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you've got people like, actors like John Wayne hated this film. Wayne hated Trumbo anyways, but that is covered in the film yeah. Trumbo. That's an interesting point. And I think we said, you know, you've got Laurence Olivier is the absolute, you know, head obviously of Rome, but also in Hollywood. Yusinov can be seen as a Hollywood agent doing deals at left, right, and center. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. Like a lot of shady business dealings. Yeah. 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 Charles Lawton would be the... Um, studio exec, wouldn't he? Studio it? exec, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. there's been there, seen it, done it. The, yeah, 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 yeah. But let's cover this socialist view, and i throw it back to you, Neil. Do you think it's a socialist story? Yes, I mean, it It definitely has a sort of, I just thought, the Walk South just has the feel of Jarrow Marchers. You better explain that to Elijah, what the Jarrow March is. This was uh, this was back in the, a 30s? long time ago, 30s, and it was people in the North who were being completely ripped apart, underpaid and such like. And, and they, in the Great Depression. And during the Great Depression, mm. and had a march on London, which grew and grew and grew. And this was right from the North of England, right the way down to London. It, it had that sort of feel. That's the sort of socialist bit, isn't it? All the, the slaves and... and and saying, right, we're going to have a peaceful walk. It could be the whole film, couldn't it? That that um, the, the freeing the slaves. 
Back to Spartacus. Yeah. Yes, that's too Spartacus. <laughs> Sorry. So let's start with the first part of the film that really impressed me, and that was Saul Bass's titles. Now, Saul Bass did Psycho and a whole host of really big films. What? You've got these wonderful titles. This is, this is really inside baseball now. Right, okay, the yeah, titles. The titles. So you've got all... See well, let, okay, I was making let, a cup of tea bit, during bit, that Yeah, bit. well, then, then you've missed something. So the, the okay, titles... There was a full two-minute segment where there was nothing. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was yeah, the end of the overture. And, complete darkness. Yep, yeah. and and then it cuts into these titles, but each one had a, a Roman bust, a Roman face. Yeah. And as you get to yes. the end, you're following this through, and they start to crack. Yeah, you know, as though Rome itself, you think it's got mm. this outward facing. This is how it is, <laughs> but there are problems, and the cracks start appearing. So subtle, so clever. Now I could be wrong, but I think the uh, the bust that he used of the Romans at the end were of actual Crassus and Julius. Mm, could be. And then someone to look like uh, Gracchus. No. But then afterwards, it's Crassus, and his face is the one that's, that is deteriorating. He didn't have a good end, Crassus. Do you ever know what happened to him? Uh, he ended up fighting against, uh, who was it? Rome's enemies and got killed. Yeah, they poured molten gold down him. That's what we call a golden ending. Yeah. Oh, God. Golden oldie. Golden handshake. So that was recreated then in Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, yeah. Conan the Barbarian. Oh, boy, no, we're not talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, it was the Barbarians were the problem, yeah. So you've got this long <laughs> film, it's over three hours long, but you've effectively got two stories running. You've got Spartacus and his revolt and leading his people to greatness and doesn't because he gets shafted. And then you've got the Roman politics. Did they work for you as the two strands of the stories, or did you find them two separate films? certainly worked as a combination piece. Yeah, I feel like you can't have the story without showing both sides because it's so involved with the politics of what was going on in Rome and how it affected, or how the revolt affected the uh, patrician class and all that. I loved the uh, politics bit more than the Kirk Douglas bit, to be honest. I thought politics was excellent, just watching everybody and how they worked their way around and, and one was winning, then the other one was winning, then the one. Is that the script or when you got actors of a calibre like it, Olivier both. I mean, you and had, Lawton you had, um, and Houston I mean, you had Olivier versus Lawton, a fantastic, absolutely fantastic, just watching them. Yeah. Sparring, really, wasn't it? There yeah. was more, much more. Yeah. Civil sparring. Yeah, mm. on the surface. On the set, it wasn't. Everybody hated Lawton. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, Lawton <laughs> just kept demanding more and more, and he was going to sue Douglas for mm. things not happening and going his way. See, so suing Douglas rather than uh, Kubrick. Well, he's, Douglas is the producer. Uh, he, had the mo- he had the money. Kubrick, just a jobbing director. <laughs> well, you know, he'd be. Anthony Mann got fired because Douglas felt he wasn't strong enough, so he brings in Kubrick. Kubrick gets more and more annoyed. And one of the things Kubrick was annoyed about is the fact that Tony Curtis and Kirk Douglas were having this little game of which one of them could screw the most women on set. So, of course, oh, they, Lord. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So things were, were not going well. And it just fragmented from there, really. It's just amazing that how bad this was as a production and yet it turns out so well. Yeah. Testament to Kubrick, I think. 
Well, let's talk about Kubrick and his direction. Now we've covered it. I really hated slow fades. I thought the slow fades was shocking. Well, if that's the worst you can say about this film, then that's that's pretty high praise. It was high the sixties. I mean, some of the yes, some exactly, of the, the, some of the uh, speeches and such were a bit. Uh, you you do realise that that, that but... two minutes of blackness with just the music wasn't a fade at the beginning. <laughs> oh, how, how amusing! Very droll. <laughs> I wondered what the hell had gone on, I must admit. I really didn't, I really caught me by surprise. That Elijah, what's your view on the direction? <laughs> it's done pretty well. Again, on the epics, I think Weiler is the, is the better director there. I think emotionally, you're right. I think he, he's a better emotional director, but, you know, for Kubrick to draw this out, it's clear where Kubrick, he loved the action scenes, he loved, and he loved that army. I mean, who wouldn't like being in charge of 8,500 men, right? You lot in the battle over there. You know, the power that gives you. Yeah. Even the guys who are supposed to be dead, like a number and specific instructions for each one of them. Yeah? Brilliant. <laughs> so it's like you, number four, dead here with your arms stretched out, your leg up, I don't know. But in a lot of these films, you can get lost in the scale. Of, of something like that. So you've got this big battle mm-hmm. going on. You've got all these people all around you and it starts cutting back and forth and you lose sight. You never lost sight with this. He did so much in long shot anyway. And then when he goes into the battle and he cuts to the people, so you're watching Kirk Douglas. And by the way, that arm chopping off sequence was horrendous. That was, that yeah. was awesome. And, and he only did it once. That, that feels like a Kubrick thing, you know, yeah. pushing the boundaries of what you can put on screen. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. That, that dropped me out of the film because I kept thinking, how did it was an amputee. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. of course and, it was. And it was timed perfectly. So if Douglas had mistimed it, he would have cut a bit more of this guy's arm off. <laughs> so he refused, and he did it once. But when they were filming these sequences of, of Douglas fighting, people kept walking in front of the camera. You felt like you were in the middle of this battle. It was almost like, there's the camera. In front of it is another fight going on, and you're sort of looking over their shoulder at the main hero. So you felt like you were there, and I thought that was really, I thought that was very effective. And that's been used ever since, the, the sort of foreground action, background action, and you're actually focusing on the background. Yeah, it's Kubrick, again, groundbreaking stuff. I do enjoy the fact that some of those extras were really trying to beat the crap out of each other. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They were fully committed to their art, yeah. So, no, it was hard sometimes to figure out who was who because the slaves were wearing Roman equipment and, of course, the Romans were wearing historically inaccurate Roman equipment. And the women are all beautifully um, beautifully coiffured and Made everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, and again, you know, it comes out so well in what was a troubled production. And what I think is clever, and go back to Kubrick's direction here, is the way the film is structured. It's over three hours long. And there are two action sequences. The first one, when the slaves revolt, yeah. and then the second one, the huge battle at the end. Mm-hmm. So that so there's also the the fight between the gladiators before the uh, revolt. Yeah, there is that, but uh, in big action set pieces, and that's true. But it builds gradually. So yeah, you're you're right, Elijah. So you've got that scene of the uh, certainly Woody Strode and Kirk Douglas fighting, which is a really tense sequence, quite graphic as well. By the way, when yes. Olivier slits the back of Woody yeah, Strode's yeah. neck and gets blood spurting up into his face, I thought that was yeah. quite intriguing. So it starts off with four of them, and then they yeah, and cuts down. So you, and but, then but you they don't get more slaves, more slaves until. The but you don't stabbed. see the first fight. You? you only see what yeah. Kirk Douglas allows you to see, looking out through the the thing. Yeah. So so you've got that mm-hmm. fight then you've got the revolt and then there's nothing until the big battle so like when they overrun the roman camp 
you don't see it. You see the aftermath of yes, it. Yes, that's true. But you don't see the fight itself. So it's beautifully paced. That does then create a problem. And uh, that absolutely but, creates a problem. Because you have the third act, or the end of the third act, really, after the big battle, where it sort of stalls. And you think, do you really need this long crucifixion scene? I thought the scene between Crassus and the Gene Simmons character I, I was unnecessary and went on just too long. You know, she doesn't want to be there. It's already a foregone conclusion. I think it, it deals more with his psyche than anything else, but yeah, it's just more creepy stalkerish vibes. Actually, he's quite a creepy stalkerish character, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah. I think it holds up really well. But of course, it's nothing like the true story. <laughs> Spartacus couldn't give a toss about the slaves. He just wanted out. He was of noble blood. Yeah. And he wanted out. Well, he had been a Roman legionary before being a slave, exactly. before being a gladiator. Exactly. And he sort of annoyed the wrong person, so he ends up there. When he escapes, he just wants to get out. And he had a chance to get into Switzerland and go over the Alps, no, or whatever no. Switzerland was then. No, well, it wasn't Switzerland. No, it wasn't then. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he decides to stand and fight and not go to Switzerland. You're about a thousand years too early, but never mind. So the true story was nothing like the socialist ideal that Trumbo created. I just find that fascinating. Two, three things from everybody, what you liked about Spartacus, because generally we all like this. Neil, I'll start with you. Acting was superb. I just love love to see Houston off in everything, really. He was fantastic, and obviously Olivier and... uh, Kirk Douglas and Gene Simmons, etc. I like the fact that there was no happy ending. There was no mindless conclusion and and such like, which tended to be that uh, the thing at the time and in most films, to be honest. And it deals with spectacle, but it it has ideas. It's that intellectual epic, as it was described at the time, which I thought was very good. But yes, very enjoyable, actually. Surprising. Good. I love, I loved the style, you know. I loved the direction, the pacing, cinematography. The music's great. So many trumpets. I didn't know there were so many trumpets on the planet, but they're all in this film. The actors all put in great performances. Uh, Lawton and Olivier, and it's an epic. That's it. It's got so much style, and it's epic. I think it's great. I love the cinematography. The music is great. That whenever a character is introduced on screen, it doesn't take long for you to know who and what they are. In a sense, that's a, it's also a downfall of the script because there's not a whole lot of character development for anyone. Everyone is exactly who they, they present themselves to be. And I think actually Kubrick kept arguing with Trumbo uh, because Spartacus was uh, too morally good. They're, they're very black and white, aren't they, the yeah. characters? There's no shades yeah. of gray. But I think that was also kind of his contrasting, you know, this moral hero. And on, he was supposed to be a Christ-like figure. It's made almost explicit in the very beginning when it contrasts Christianity with Rome. It's his moral virtue, you know, refusing to rape the woman when she's given to him compared to even Gracchus, who surrounds himself with women. Him being married to, you know, one wife instead of having the, like the Flusies that are surround, that are with Laurence Olivier. And- I, I think you make a really good point there, because if you think about it, Spartacus begins the film being crucified, tied up on that rock. Yeah. In, a crucifix, mm-hmm. in, a, in a crucified pose, and ends the film literally crucified. The only character for me that developed throughout the film was Julius Caesar, because he became more corrupt yeah. and more ambitious as the film went on. In the beginning, he yeah. wasn't. Yeah, I know. Whereas all the others, yeah, stuck to the stuck to the guns. Although, no, I would say Tony Curtis as well. Tony Curtis' character's changed as he went through. 
I do want to pick up on Alex North's score, and I think it is one of the greatest music scores ever done in cinema. I think the 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 love theme on its own is brilliant and, and reinforces the emotion in the piece, which Kubrick never had again. In fact, it is the most emotional Kubrick film out there. Elijah? I think the score is great. Um, again, I compare it to things like Ben-Hur, and I am a Miklos Rosa fan. Yeah, I, I don't think it. it ha- I don't think it holds up to the romance theme in Ben Hur, but I think it's excellent. It's an interesting point. Ben Hur has more themes than Spartacus. I mean, North had done an action theme, you know, the march, the triumphalist yeah. march, and a love theme. Ben Hur has six themes that I can immediately think of when it goes through it. So, yeah, Rosa, yeah, Rosa at that point was absolutely in his element, and I, uh, yeah, I concede that Ben Hur is a better score. But you keep saying about, oh, it's an unusual film for Kubrick and it's got more emotion than Kubrick. But this was Kubrick's big epic. And I mean, an epic needs epic components and you don't, you're not going to get away in an epic with some weird synthesizer noises like he got away with in, in later films. You know, it has to have an epic score to be an epic. But, But you've got to look at where Kubrick was within his career. Now, at this point, he had done The Killing, Parts of Glory. This was his big shout, you know. Yeah. He got this off and running. So he's not going to do weirdy stuff in it. He's going to do it, deliver the goods. I mean, this is his make-or-break film. He's got to deliver a full-on epic action sequences. He's got to have love interest. He's got to have a... He had the snails and oyster scene in a film, which was clearly a gay reference at a time mm-hmm. when gay it was illegal to have gay sex. Yeah. So mm. it did take risks in, in that regard. In a couple of words, Elijah, what are your thoughts? It's a, it's a brilliant film. Uh, very, very well made. Eminently watchable. And I would and agree. It's epic. And you get to see a guy get his arm chopped off. I mean, yeah. what more can you want? In, in 1960. Yeah. I would agree. I think the only problem with it is it's paced so well that once you've had the big battle, what follows just slows the film down. But other than that, it's an excellent film. It's literate, very well scripted. Graham? Yeah, I just as I say, I just loved it. I loved all the dialogue. I thought the the delivery, and you think oh, these are just, you know, these are just great actors at the peak of their game, delivering clever lines, and it just it just sounds so good. And the intrigue in Rome was just very very interesting. You know, everybody stabbing each other in the back, but wanting them to know that they stabbed yes. them in the back. Yes. You know, and that yeah. sort of stuff is very good. Job, like Poli- you stab them in the back, you turn them around and say, "Hey, it was me the whole time." time yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good job. Politics has moved on. Uh, Neil, uh, I thought it was far more fun than I thought it would be. Good. So, Spartacus, we all liked it. Next time, I believe we're going back to James Bond. Yes, we are. Yeah. From Russia with love. So oh, would we would one. we call would we call Spartacus uh, Julius Caesar's origin story? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it would be. I will yeah. say uh, on on Julius Caesar, something that made me laugh was uh, when Gracchus is like, "Hey, we should put Julius Caesar in charge of the garrison. That way." Crassus doesn't take over Rome and become a dictator. <laughs> yeah. yeah How did that work out for you? <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably epic foreshadowing, isn't it, really? <laughs> that was fun. Right, so we all liked it. Elijah, look forward to the next time we rediscover the classics. Yeah, I can't wait. That's going to be great. Cheers, then. Cheers, then. Thank right, you very cheers. much. A classic movie. Graham, as we play out, can we have some more of Alex North's Excellent score for Spartacus, please. 
Before we finish, congratulations to Elijah and his wife Sarah on the birth of their little boy, Peter. Elijah will be returning with another classic film shortly. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Okay, guys, time to watch some movies for the end-of-month reviews. So it only remains for us to say... We made it to the end of the episode without Neil, with whatever streaming from his nose, giving us all coronavirus. You can't catch it from a Chinese takeaway, Jeff. Trump has just said it'll be fine when the warm weather arrives. Oh, yes... That's how all these viruses work. And from the rest of us, thanks thanks for listening and goodbye. goodbye. That's you. That's you. Whoops. make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.